Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Before we get started, just a public service announcement that today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. You can listen to their audiobooks whenever and whenever you want and get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. .com at www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. Okay, this is William Lauren Katz, and I would like to introduce my book, Breaking the Chains. It's a story of slavery and slave resistance in the United States. And uh, one of the things, which I'll come back to in a moment, is that it's highly illustrated with many uh, photographs, and line drawings and engravings of the time that I collected so that they could be used to not only tell the story, but to show the story. And I'll come back to that in a moment. The book has a number of chapters, 13 in all. It starts from Africa and the first rebellions that took place against the slave catchers in Africa, takes one on the high seas, a trip across the Atlantic in which there were a hundred or more slave rebellions in some instance, uh, instances, the Africans taking control of the ships and even getting back to Africa. And then it goes on to what happened here in the Americas, where <clears throat> uh, slaves were considered from the beginning a troublesome property which meant nobody adopts to slavery, nobody likes it, and everybody who has a chance revolts. And every people who has ever been enslaved, whether it was the ancient Hebrews or people of modern times, find a way to resist, escape. And it talks then on the chapter that you're going to be hearing on the battle for family and knowledge. And our families kept their structure together as best they could, They fought to educate themselves and to use this knowledge to develop resistance. And then the book goes on into the way plantation life was disrupted, how there was resistance in both the industrial part of the South and the urban part of the South, different kind of resistance than on the plantations. And then there's a chapter on, it's called Music for Jesus, Lyrics for Freedom on how enslaved people, everybody thought they were entirely ignorant, turned their religion and particularly the music that accompanied their religious services 
into laments for freedom, desires for freedom, and even plans for freedom. And the book goes on to discuss runaways and maroons, these colonies that formed when Native Americans and African Americans joined together to make a life for themselves that was to be their American dream and to fight off those who would stop them. And I hope you enjoy the reading. The book is Breaking the Chains, African American Slave Resistance. And this is William Lauren Katz. Thank you. Industrial and Urban Resistance Slave labor did far more than bring in southern crops. In 1795, Irish visitor Isaac Weld found slaveholders have nearly everything they can want on their estates, and that African Americans filled the skilled positions as tailors, shoemakers, carpenters, smiths, turners, wheelwrights, weavers, tanners. Slaves built George Washington's Mount Vernon and Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. They constructed the famous Iron Grill balconies of New Orleans, built churches, jails, and the beautiful Turo Synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island. Slaves were managers of plantations and rice mills, and a few were architects, civil engineers, and inventors. Their contribution stimulated a growing U.S. economy. One slave is credited with helping Eli Whitney invent the cotton gin, and another with helping Cyrus McCormick create the reaper. Slave Benjamin Bradley created a steam engine model out of a gun barrel, pewter, and round pieces of steel, sold it, and used the cash to build an engine large enough to propel a battleship. Bradley became an inventor for the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. Slave laborers cleared wilderness land and built log cabins. They piloted steamboats, ferries, and early locomotives. Some dug gold in California, and others roped and branded cattle from South Carolina to Texas. Their labor built bridges in Mississippi, hotels in Alabama, roads in Louisiana, and ships in Georgia and Maryland. The Norfolk ferry boat was run by a slave pilot, engineer, and crew, and 10,000 others ran Ohio and Mississippi River steamboats. Slaves were lead miners in Virginia and Missouri, salt miners in Kentucky, Alabama, and Virginia, lumber workers from Texas to Virginia, iron workers in Virginia and South Carolina, and turpentine producers in North Carolina and Alabama. They built southern canals, railroads, tunnels, ships, turnpikes, and worked for gas and light companies. They labored for U.S. Army and federal government projects in the southern states. Some became managers. Sandy Maybank, head carpenter at the Reverend C.C. Jones Rice Mill and Plantation, was placed in charge when Jones was away. Horace, slave architect and civil engineer, built bridges for Robert Jemison, Jr., a wealthy Alabama manufacturer. His owner and Jemison had the 1845 legislature emancipate Horace, and the three continued their business partnership and personal relationship. The southern iron industry depended on 10,000 slave laborers. The Oxford Iron Works in Virginia owned 220 slaves. The Nesbitt Manufacturing Company of South Carolina used 120, 
and the giant Tredegar Iron Company of Virginia had 450 slaves working alongside an equal number of whites. The Statue of Freedom for the Capitol Dome in Washington was bolted together and finally lifted into place, reported the New York Tribune, by a black master builder who had replaced the white who went on strike. Roads westward were often clogged with skilled whites unable to compete with slave labor. Half a million slaves lived and worked in southern cities by the 1850s. Blacks made up half of Charleston's population. Some 70,000 lived in the region's eight leading urban centers, and their numbers were expanding rapidly in Mobile, Savannah, Montgomery, and Richmond. Most were men, more likely than women to be taught urban and industrial skills. But women were represented in occupations such as cooks, maids, and servants. Urban slavery was not the half-freedom some whites claimed. An urban escapee denied it was not hard and insisted, slavery is slavery wherever it is found. Urban working hours sometimes exceeded 12 or even 16 hours a day, and sugar refineries reached 18 hours a day day and night, except during the winter months, reported an overseer. One sugar mill did not grant slaves the Christmas and New Year's holidays for four out of five years in the 1850s. This also happened in other refineries. In cities, slaves found dangerous work, poor living quarters, and inadequate clothing. The owner of the Oxford Ironworks said he supplied what I consider absolutely necessary for his health and endurance. Slave eating conditions at a rice mill were described by a white observer. Chairs, tables, plates, knives, forks, they had none. They sat on the earth or doorsteps and ate either out of their little cedar tubs or an iron pot, some few with broken iron spoons, more with pieces of wood, and all the children with their fingers. Urban slaves were not allowed to stroll through city streets when they wished, and some were locked in day and night. When outside, they had to wear badges or carry employer passes. The New Orleans Gas Company built 15-foot brick walls and iron gates between their 50 bondsmen and the sparkling nightlife of New Orleans. The whole of our concern is surrounded with a brick wall ten feet high, said an Alabama textile manager, and no one is admitted after work hours except the watchman or one of the owners. Whites wish they could have sealed off the slaves from the quarter of a million free people of color who lived in southern cities. Slavery was a society built for master and slave, and a free black complained white Charlestonians in 1822, excites our slaves, who continually have before their eyes persons of the same color, many of whom they had known in slavery, freed from the control of masters, working where they please, going whither they please. Seeing them, the slave pants for freedom. Though carefully watched, lest they help fugitives, and hounded by legal restrictions, some opened their homes to runaways, sisters, brothers, and perfect strangers.
In Baltimore, slave Frederick Douglass learned the animosity white workers felt toward blacks. Employed as a caulker in a shipyard, he was attacked by whites, fearful that blacks might take their jobs. Assaulted by a white who challenged his right to work, Douglas threw him into the dock. Whenever any of them struck me, I struck back again, regardless of consequences. But he was finally attacked by four at once, who came near killing me in broad daylight. He reported the incident to his owner, whose indignation Douglas found resulted from the thought that his rights of property in my person had not been respected more than from any sense of outrage committed on me as a man. Owner and slave appeared before Judge Watson for an arrest warrant, but since no white witnesses testified for Douglas, none was issued. Whites were deeply divided over employing slaves in cities or industries. Slaveholders spent time and money training slaves in skills with the hope of renting them out. But a group of Charlestonians declared their city's slaves were in every way conducting themselves as if they were not slaves. Another white warned, city slaves get strange notions in their heads and grow discontented. James Sterling toured urban and rural regions and wrote his Letters from the Slave States, 1857. To him, the South was one of her own cotton steamers, filled from hold to top deck with the most inflammable matter, everything heated to the burning point, a stiff wind blowing from one end to the other, her high-pressure boiler pressed to bursting. On such a volcano is based the institution of slavery, wrote Sterling. The slaveholder remedy was repression, but Sterling's view was different. Terrorism does not pacify a people. It only changes complaint to conspiracy. If the whites were divided over black laborers in their cities, slaves were united in their preference for urban work over the dull plantation routines. In cities, many could find ways to earn extra money to gain freedom and purchase loved ones. Emmanuel Quivers, hired out to the Tredegar Iron Company, persuaded its owner to buy him. After four years of laboring for wages, he purchased himself, his wife, and four children. The Quivers family settled in Gold Rush, California, where the children gained an education, and one became foreman in a Stockton factory. Though they had escaped from plantation routines, Slaves still revolted against their urban masters and urban routines, excessive confinement, work hazards, and demanding overseers and bosses. Like rural laborers, they slowed efforts to a crawl, feigned sickness, stole or sabotaged equipment and property, set fires, challenged bosses in many overt and covert ways, and conspired at insurrections or flights to freedom. James's overseer complained about his cobbler. He will not do what is proper. He is capable of finishing six pairs of shoes a week, and he seldom does more than three. Jack, in an Alabama coal mine, refused to pump water and instead lay there on a plank and went to sleep 
insisting that it was not necessary to haul any more, said the manager. The master of Jack Savage faced a clever, resistant young man. He found Savage exceedingly lazy, quite smart, always giving trouble, and capable of murdering me or burning my dwelling at night. Some slaves refused to handle dangerous factory jobs, and others failed to return after Christmas season. Complaining of beatings, lack of food, overwork, and having to wash their own clothes on Sunday, slaves were a railroad contractor stopped work. In many factories, slave sickness was so common, bosses could not tell when men were ill or faking. Sabotage took some unusual turns among skilled industrial slaves. Two black railroad workers, seeing an oncoming, roaring locomotive, jumped off their handcar without telling the overseer riding with them. An overseer in a sugar mill so outraged one slave, he tried to push the white man into the boiling juice. As hired workers, slaves resented sweating for someone else's gain, a person who was not even their owner. Anthony told to work on Sunday by a furnace manager, said Sunday was his day, and that he was not going to take it up going to your place, and the two had a fight. Jordan Hatcher, 17, scuffled with his Virginia boss. He finally fled after striking the man fatally with a poker. Captured, he was sentenced to death, but his sentence was commuted by Virginia's governor. Theft became a common way of expressing resentment, helping oneself or halting production. Manufacturer William Weaver complained, I'm afraid if I leave here, they will steal the place. They come very near it while I am here. Jacob, a blacksmith, made himself a key to steal provisions from a smokehouse. Frank, a carpenter, stole $160 in gold and silver from his master, also using a key he had made. To ensure production, some masters provided both attractive rewards and fearful punishments. Food and clothing allowances were increased for hard workers, held back from those who failed to meet quotas. In 1857, a gristmiller decided, don't give John and Charles any summer shoes because they killed a goat. Time off at Christmas was either cut or extended for certain slaves, depending on the employer's views of their efficiency and proper behavior. Overtime pay, called stimulant and reward money, was commonly used to increase slave production in factories. For working on Sundays, a tobacco manufacturer paid slaves one to three dollars a week. One boss paid his men extra cash, calling it nothing more nor less than presents for their good behavior while working. The Savannah Fire Department welcomed and paid slaves extra cash for fighting fires or being among the first to reach a blazing home or business. A Lexington, Kentucky rope factory employer argued for the system of stimulant and reward money. This keeps them contented and makes them ambitious and more laborers obtain that could possibly be forced from them by severity. But a Lexington visitor to a hemp factory found another hand behind the plan. 
The stimulus of wages is applied behind the whip. Of course, the prime motor. Reporter Olmsted talked with an urban capitalist whose complaints sounded like those of rural planters. We have tried reward and punishments, but it makes no difference. We must always calculate that they will not labor at all except to avoid punishment, and they will never do more than just enough to save themselves from being punished. And no amount of punishment will prevent their working carelessly and indifferently. The use of arson as a slave weapon leaped from farm to city. Useful because it was easily available and hard to pin on a fast-moving suspect, it gave employers of slaves one more worry. In 1845, Senator Henry Clay's Lexington bagging factory burned down mysteriously. A Texas employer claimed his blacksmith burned down his shop, and a court agreed. One slave stepped up and told his master he would burn down his factory if the overseer was not fired. The surprise and shock when the most trusted, faithful, and privileged slaves ran away had become a southern white tradition. This dismay thrived in urban as well as rural settings, among skilled and factory slaves as well as field hands. Most left their workbenches to stay with nearby relatives. They fled for a few days or a week and returned after visiting loved ones. A common cause for flight came when slaves heard they were about to be punished or sold away from family. Absenteeism also peaked in some factories during late summer and fall when production pressures soared. Often slaves tried to handle the issue of visits to wives or loved ones by honest bargaining. Some even offered to make up lost time. But when turned down, some just disappeared to return later. In one instance, six men asked for leave, were turned down, and argued for weeks with the overseer of a river improvement project. When he still refused, they picked up and left. The overseer, to head off a complete breakdown of his authority, hastily decided to let the rest visit their wives. Slaves found new opportunities for flight from cities, especially ports or rail depots. A great advantage was the number of free blacks and friendly whites who might write passes and provide cash, directions, or other help. One black Louisiana carpenter sold forged passes for runaways. Although officials seized him, he escaped with one of his passes. Manuel, a slave bought a certificate of freedom from a friend, reached Philadelphia under another name, and persuaded an abolitionist to purchase his children. Some fugitives took jobs as sailors and then jumped ship at ports from Liverpool, England, to Boston and Detroit. Frederick Douglass left his caulker job in a Baltimore shipyard and fled to New York City with a pass forged by a black seaman. A southern city could not tolerate a peaceful protest by African Americans. On a hot July day in 1853, John Scott and 22 other slaves marched to the Richmond mayor's office to demand the facts about a will they believed freed 118 people. Scott, speaking for the 22 men and women, 
almost half of whom had learned to read and write, said their intention was to return to the home of our forefathers in Africa. The delegation was arrested, but Scott again insisted, we cannot be still until we get home to Africa. Whites in southern cities, despite their many efforts at slave control, never felt completely secure. Urban slaves and free blacks played a leading role in the larger slave plots and rebellions of the 19th century. As we shall see in Chapter 9, In 1856, industrial slaves, Louisiana sugar millers, Arkansas salt boilers, Missouri lead and iron miners, particularly along the Cumberland River, were found conspiring for freedom. Scores were arrested, and 29 were executed. The next year, Dred Scott, a St. Louis slave, made history. Because his master took him to the Wisconsin Territory where slavery was banned, Scott said he and his family were free. In St. Louis, he hired attorneys and began a lawsuit that lasted more than a decade. In 1857, the Supreme Court, by a 7-2 to two vote, turned down the Scott family's plea for liberty. The high court decision made it legal for slaveholders to bring their slave property to any state and territory in the United States, and added that a black had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. It was not known at the time that President-elect James Buchanan, in violation of the Constitution's separation of powers, had intervened by sending letters on his views to three Supreme Court justices. However, by that time, the family had an owner who liberated them. The Scots remained in St. Louis, where Dredd worked as a porter at Barnum's Hotel and also helped his wife, Harriet, run a laundry business. Tourists came to see the hotel porter, whose case helped push the United States toward civil war. Years of toil had ruined the Scots' health, and in 1858, Dred Scott died of tuberculosis. The next year, Harriet Scott died. But the elderly couple, who fought so doggedly for liberty, died as free people. This ends side one of cassette two. Please fast forward to the end before turning the cassette over.